0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 297 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a fantastic, supportive writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. How are you, Al? Well, I think it's probably fair to say.
1: <laughs> yeah? This is going to be a lengthy answer, oh, okay. so everybody might <laughs> want to just settle back with a cup of tea here. <gasps> cup of tea. Did you hear that? Yeah. Oh, that was terrible. Yeah. Um, a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Um, So I am, and I think anyone who was on Twitter last night will probably know exactly where I'm up to, because I sent out a tweet that said, writing a book is hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thanks for coming to my TED talk because that was pretty much it. (laughs) It Writing writing a book is hard. Um, Yeah, look, I've got myself into a bit of a mess in the sense that I am so close to finishing my current, you know, work in progress. I'm really close. I I know where I'm. I know the end. I know where I'm up to. I know what's going on. But I've written myself into this incredibly complicated situation. And it's kind of like, it's honestly, it's like one word at a time, me trying to work out, as each sentence goes down, it takes me one step further to working out how I'm going to write my way out of it. Um, But I haven't got a very clear path right now. Mm -hmm. And so it's, um, you know, I shared a a post on Facebook last night about how it's that famous one by, um, I think it's EL Doctor, I'll have to double check, about, you know, how writing a book is like, you know driving a car and you can only see as far as the headlights. Yes. Well, I'm sort of that but I'm in the dark and the fog and the rain <laughs> and I'm like I'm a FUD up against the dashboard, you know, holding, clinging to the steering wheel, hoping, hoping, hoping that I'm going to actually find a light at some point soon.
0: Mm.
1: Um, yeah, so that – go out. so I told you it was going to be a long and involved answer. <laughs> so that's where I am, people. Oh,
0: my god. Feel for me. Okay. Send,
1: send me love and biscuits because that's kind of how I'm feeling right now.
0: But what are you doing to – inch forward are you just pushing through or are you using some other technique some people drive you know park on the side of the road for a while
1: no no I I don't I look to to be honest I have done that in the past you know we've talked about my situation when I was writing the Mapmaker Chronicles um book two which is Prisoner of the Black Hawk Mm. and how I, I, you know, I put Quinn, my gorgeous hero, Quinn, poor love, popped him down a hole in the jungle, very deep, dark hole in the jungle with bad guys at the top and, you know, all sorts of terrible things happening. Um, a betrayal, you know, the whole bit. We did we did it all. And then I realized I didn't know how to get him out. And uh, it took me. Two weeks to work out. Like I parked that one. I walked, so procrasti Pup, God love him, and I yeah. walked and walked and walked and walked about fifty k while I tried to work out how to get Quinn out of the hole. But I don't feel like this is that. That would be the best scenario for this particular situation because, as I said, it's it's um it's not my character is in a hole. Mm. It's I've got like three or four different story threads that need to come together in one spot in a logical and mm. sort of sensible way to get me to the point where I know the end is and I yes. know I know where I'm going. Um, but it's just the drawing those things together in a way that's not um, convenient,
0: yes, you know, I just because I
1: want it to happen. So that's So I feel like the only way for me to do this is kind of like just to tiptoe through the spider's web, mm. drawing the gossamer threads together as I go, <laughs> hoping I'll hit that fat spider right in the middle. That's kind of where I am. What
0: an image! Okay, <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. I hope you get that fat spider. <laughs> I know the fat spider is worth it, but I just, I'm just not quite sure how to. How I to feel get that there. there's a lot of walking in your future, mm, in your immediate future.
1: Maybe, but yes. I,
0: I do, I do think that this is just feeling to
1: me like one, like one word at a time, and there is a little yeah. bit of like last night. I was in the shower. Thank heavens for the shower. And I had a bit of a thought of, oh, what if I I took him and removed him and put him somewhere else useful Mm. and, you know, went from there? So I'm kind of thinking that maybe is what I'll do next to see if that opens up, you know, a little
0: path on the web for me. Anyway, gosh, this is long and (laughs) involved. How are you, Val? Maybe what you need to do is go on a creative date with yourself. Yes. Maybe. Maybe a creative date. Because I'm going Uh, on one tonight.
1: Well, see, you just wanted to segue. There. Yes. I took that as – I was thinking that that was actually sensible, like the house trying to help me here. But all you were actually doing was segueing to your next no, I, move. I trying.
0: I am trying to help you as well. Where are you going? I am. I'm so excited. I am going to Melbourne and I'm going to see the musical Come From Away. which. Oh. And when I booked the ticket, I had no idea – I had I didn't it didn't even occur to me that I booked the ticket for September 11 because of course the musical is about the events of September 11 and the aftermath where the town of Gander in Newfoundland in Canada tiny town of 11,000 people suddenly had this influx of 7,000 plane passengers who were diverted from JFK because, or diverted from many airports because all of the flights were grounded in the U.S. and that was a nearby airport. I mean, it's a tiny town, and it's about the ensuing five days where um, the town just sprang into action. Striking bus drivers came back to work to ferry these people around. Every single person was billeted. Everyone was given fresh clothes, food. There's prescriptions filled. They, they organised day trips so that they could occupy these people. It's the most heartwarming. I'm just getting teary thinking about it. It's the most heartwarming story. Wow. And yeah, and they made a musical out of it, which um, was a hit on Broadway and is now in Melbourne, and I'm just so excited to see it tonight.
1: Wow, well, I hadn't even... I haven't even heard of it. So there you go. There's a whole new world. And so what, you're just popping down to Melbourne to watch a musical? No. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, I'm thinking
0: as a creative day, that could work really nicely for
1: me. I'll just, you know, I'll tell the builder that I'll be popping
0: to Melbourne. It's not quite, <laughs> I'm not oh. quite as indulgent as that. I'm there for a conference, I'm speaking at a summit, and I thought I would take that opportunity to go uh, see, it didn't even occur to me until um, Ra in the office and I were talking about it and I thought, I'm going to book this musical. So, yeah, very excited.
1: Very exciting.
0: Well, I hope mm. you really enjoy that. Yes, and anyone else who has seen it, do let me know. I'm keen to find out what you thought as well. Yes, Anyway, let's move on. We want to give a big shout out to C-Cache, maybe, is the username on iTunes, who kindly of left us a review and called it a regular dose of motivation. Thank you, C. Kesh, because C. Kesh has said, listening to the So You Want to Be a Writer podcast has been a game changer for me. It was the encouragement I needed to put my fingers on the keyboard and keep adding to that word count. My favourite part of the podcast is the writer-in-residence interviews. Alison is is a wonderfully adept interviewer, always drawing from the interviewee exactly what aspiring writers need and want to know. Valerie's knowledge of the writing scene is second to none, and I love her words of the day. Well. <laughs> Every episode of So You Want to Be a Writer delivers a treasure trove of information, tips, and motivation. Thanks, Val and Al. Oh, oh thank Thanks you very much. C-Cash. Really I like my special singling it. out there. I'm going to I know. The big thing, but I know. I really I'm like a bit jealous. singling out. Yeah, I know but you know, happy. at least she loves my words of the week. Of course. Of <laughs> course. Why not? <laughs> exactly. All doesn't right. everybody, Val? Of course, doesn't everybody? I know, right? So we want to also give a shout-out to the awesome people in our writing community because the long list for the Rochelle Prize just got announced. And there were over 700 entries and 21 writers were announced on this year's long list. But five of those 21 are alumni of... The Australian Writers Centre. So, big congratulations to Five. Jennifer Carlyle. That's amazing. Yep. I, I was amazing. so
1: excited when I saw the list, and I was like, I recognise names there. I know, and some of those people are in our group, exactly. and I was so
0: excited. Very, very exciting. So, that's Jennifer Carlyle, Lauren Draper, Kylie Orr, January Gilchrist, and Sarah Fidellas. So. You know, congratulations for – it's it's no mean feat to get on the long list and I can't wait to see all of you, I'm sure, on the short list. <laughs> all of you, <laughs> absolutely. Yep. Of five, course, there can, only, right there. there can only be one winner but, you know, um the winner will be announced or the shortlist will be announced in October and the winner in November 2019.
1: Yeah. So now, good luck, everybody. Yes. We're very
0: excited and we are cheering for all of you. Very excited. So you have a link for us on Beta Readers, Al.
1: I, I do. Yes, indeed, I have a link on Beta Readers. Um, so this link, which is called Beta Readers, the mm. key to improving your manuscript, mm. was on Elizabeth Span Craig's website, ElizabethSpanCraig.com, um and that's span with two N's. Mm. Um, now, Elizabeth is pretty awesome. She has been around for a long time. She does this fantastic little thing every week, this service that I love her for, where she aggregates the best writing links on Twitter and tweets them like she sends out Mm -hmm. one tweet with this massive list of all of these amazing um, writing posts and you know like there's there's they're popular posts so there's some of them are hit and miss as far as I'm concerned but there is always some gold on that list so she is most assuredly worth having a look at as far as following her on Twitter and also checking out her website she writes cozy mysteries like she's got a very distinct I think she's got three series she, so she's in a very distinct, distinct genre, but she writes three different series within the genre. And she, um, she indie publishes um, – she's kind of like a hybrid. So she indie publishes some, and then some of them are out through traditional yeah. publishers. So she's – you know, she's got it all going on. As far as the business of writing goes – the woman is well and truly, you know, organized. Um, anyway, so she wrote this post. Um, she writes very clear, useful how-to posts as well. So, yes. you know, like, as you can tell, I'm a little bit of a fan here of mm-hmm. her work. Um, as far as, you know, we I've been uh, sort of following her on, on Twitter, on socials, you know, for about the 10 years that I have been blogging. So, she has been around for a long time. She does excellent stuff. Anyway... She wrote a post. Yes. How was was that for an intro? Did you like
0: it? And we'll we'll put the link to the post in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au.
1: We will. Now, she also runs guest posts. This particular uh, post on her site is um, is a guest post by Hank Quince, Q-U-E-N-S-E. Beta readers, the key to improving your manuscript. Now, the thing I liked about this, of course, there's a lot of information about beta readers out there and why you need them and what they can do for you. And we have discussed them um, in the past uh, because, um, as a children's author, I think a beta reader that is in the market for your age group is about one of the most useful things that you can possibly ever come across. Um, and I have a couple that I um, call upon at different times uh, to read my to read my manuscripts. I, of course, have two inbuilt in my house, which is, you know, entirely uh, a useful thing. But I also have um, the lovely Jazzy from Jazzy's Bookshelf has done some beta reading for me. And I have another young friend, um, another girl that I know because – you know I, I if I all I was to do was to give my manuscripts to the two boys I live with, then I, you know I would get a fairly specific view of my of my work. so I like to spread it around a bit. But um, what this post has is a is a list of questions. Um, and as I've talked about in the past, one of the most important things about you know, if you're going to ask someone to beta read for you, you need to understand what it is that you want from them, and you need to understand, you need to give them an idea of how to give you what you what what it is that you want. So when I give um, the the my readers a manuscript, I give them a list of questions. Yeah, and the questions really are very, very specific. Um particularly yeah. if you're dealing with, you know, kids who are 10 to 14, you need you need a list of questions, trust yeah. me. Otherwise yeah. you'll get, yeah, no, it was all right. <laughs> That's what you'll get. Um so um the, in this particular instance, Hank has given a list of questions that are aimed at adult beta readers, um, which of course list. again is a totally different thing. And it's a good
0: great list. list.
1: It's a great starting point for anybody because mm. it covers off a lot of the main details of what you want. You know, you know, are there too many characters in the in the first scene? Were the characters believable? Are the, you know? Did you notice any problems with the timeline or with the with the you know inconsistency of place or anything mm. like that? So. The, the list of questions that he's given, he's he's offered up 16 questions. Um, and I think that it's worth, if you are considering using a beta reader, it is worth having a look at a post, um, you know, along these lines to get an idea of the kinds of things that you want to know. Because I think at the end of the day, you finish a manuscript and you always, in the back of your mind – have an idea of where the problems might be you don't necessarily want to admit that those problems are there and you don't necessarily want your beta reader to focus only on those problems Mm. but you need to ask some questions that will elicit the kind of response that will tell you if that problem does exist often they relate to character Mm. um i find like Mm. for me it will it's usually timelines and character is where you know would quinn actually do this is the kind of question that you need answered um with with my manuscripts you know my boys are very very good at no mum Quinn would not do this you know he's not that guy um and kids will tell you like they are really honest about it it's like there is no way I believed that this would happen there is no way Um, I remember with a manuscript that I wrote recently I gave it to the lovely Jazzy and she came back to me with the feedback that my one of my main characters she was too perfect she knew the answer all the right. time she always knew what to do now she is that person she's most assuredly yes. that person in her world but she didn't have i had not given enough attention to her weakness mm. and she does have a big weakness but i had obviously not not explored it yes. enough so you know and i thought that was amazing feedback like that was fantastic feedback for me as a writer from from the reader that was right in the sweet spot of my manuscript mm. so you want to ask questions like you know you know could you relate to the main character mm. um you know did you did you feel, you know, because they, they'll tell you if they're bored as well. And if, you, if, if your reader is bored with your character, it's because your character is not developing. Your character hasn't grown. Your character is too one-dimensional. Your character is too perfect, possibly. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we'll put the link in the show notes to these questions. But I think that they are definitely worth um, having a look at. One of the other questions that I particularly liked in this was about um, the dialogue, Mm. Um, does it sound natural? Yes. And that's a that's a that's a place where a lot of uh writers go wrong. And the second part of that question is was there too much exposition?
0: Yes. Um,
1: you know, where well, Valerie, the reason that I <laughs> felt I needed to go on this quest was because I was abandoned as a baby, you know, yes. that kind of stuff. Yes. You know, so um yeah.
0: I think dialogue is a big one because if you lose people, your readers, with having dialogue that's not authentic, or more specifically, when the character uses words that you just think they would not know that word or they would not choose that word to express, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. That that's when suddenly there's chinks in the credibility of the of the story. So yeah, I think, that, and that's, that's a big something
1: one. that we also see a lot of in children's and YA writing mm. is that sort of you know that. The, the adult writer has things that they want to say mm. and they put it in dialogue um, into a 10-year-old's mouth yeah. using, you know, imagery or references that that 10-year-old just would not have unless yeah. they were, you know, quite an extraordinary 10-year-old in many ways, in which case that character has to be that from the, the opening sentence, you know. Mm. Anyway. Do
0: those... you enjoy beta reading? No. Really? Ooh, no. Really? No, I mean, I, I, no, no, I don't no, when, when you're the beta reader, oh, you don't do it. No, I don't do it. Okay. No, I right. don't do it. I can't um, help but um, structurally edit the thing. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I, I have had to, to be honest with you, I used to do it mm. um, before my books were published and, and that kind of stuff. Mm. But I don't do it now for a couple of reasons. I don't have time. Mm. And secondly, I don't want... I don't want to put myself in a position ever of, you know, even sort of subconsciously taking on somebody else's um, world or idea mm. or whatever mm. and, you know, it, because you, you would not consciously do of it. Of course, of course. But you, do, you just – so I, I just don't do it.
0: Yep, no. yep. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: Yeah, I am not available for beta reading, sorry.
0: <laughs> okay, let's move on then. Um, to our competition this week we have this great competition we have three copies of bake australia great by Catherine sabbath as in bake like you know you bake a cake bake australia great um something to whet your appetite this week and perfect for the foodies or pun fans we have three copies of bake australia great by sydney cake queen Catherine sabbath to give away style maven Catherine sabbath deliciously witty cakes range from kitsch and cute to stylish and sophisticated. Start sophisticated. Start at chapter one, easy as, for beginner baking heaven. Enter stage left, the giant fairy bread cake, flame hey. and galah cupcakes and opal cookies. Progress to chapter two. She'll be right to engineer your own opera house pavlova. Oh, my God, I want that. Opera house pavlova. Or decorate a You dame. have to make it, Val. Though. I know. Just Can someone just talk make about it for that. Me? No. <laughs> Decorate a dame Edna koala. Um, chapter three, advanced Australia fair, where you bust out a great Aussie dream home or knock everyone's socks off with Priscilla queen of the desert. This baking legend will teach you the tips and techniques to create maximum effect with every cake. Sounds like a great creative activity. And if you want your copy of bake Australia, great. And I've seen it. The pictures are just fantastic. Um, the entries close on 16th of September, 2019. So just go through to writercentercomau slash win in order to enter. And if you go to that uh, link in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic competition for you to enter. So that's writercenter.com.au/win slash win. All right, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? I don't know. I
1: think after the flame and Galah cupcakes, I'm not entirely sure I am, but, you know, <laughs> all right, I'll brace myself. <laughs>
0: All right, so it's raddamantine. Some people might say raddamantine, but I'm just gonna say raddamantine. Oh, sorry. Am I supposed to say something? <laughs> you could say, oh well, I would pronounce that? it rather than. It was just dead, dead space
1: right there, wasn't it?
0: <laughs> while I while I sat there and thought, oh, here we go. <laughs> Anywho, okay. So it looks and sounds like a bit of some kind of pharmaceutical. But it's not, it means harshly strict, and comes from Radamanthus, who is the son of Zeus. According to the Macquarie Dictionary, um, he was awarded, sorry, he was rewarded for the justice he exemplified on earth by being made after his death a judge in the lower world where he served with his brothers Minos and Achus. So you might say the Radamanthine principal ran the school with an iron fist. There you go then right fine but you're not going to you I'm might
1: not. you I, might I just can't even imagine dropping that into a, into a, anything do you know what I have to say though I yes. think I am gonna I'm gonna put a vote in here for them for the MVP yeah. of your word of the week all right so this is my most valuable player so far in 297 you would pick episodes.
0: This
1: one? no 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 no, God, no. okay sorry. God. Liminal, liminal is your oh, MVP
0: liminal. because yeah. I
1: have seen it in the last three books that I have read. Really, liminal. it just—it's like it's like yellow cars. Once <laughs> you've <laughs> seen them, they pop up everywhere. Am I right? Yeah, it's like okay. Spoto. I'm doing Spoto with liminal. I love so it.
0: So if anyone
1: else hasn't an, has a vote, would like to put up a nomination for MVP of the Word of the Week that they think mm. is more valuable than liminal, than liminal, then I am happy to hear it pop it into the so you want to be a writer Facebook community podcast community and let me know what you think of my choice of MVP but i seriously it it is is one of those words that since we discussed it yeah i have seen it everywhere yeah and i, I would like to know what is the one word of the week that after it's been discussed on the podcast you have seen everywhere
0: It's so true because sometimes um, when I'm reading and I come across one of my words of the week, I do a little wiggle because I'm really excited.
1: A little wiggle.
0: (laughs) I just did one then.
1: (laughs) So if you could do a little boomerang for us or a little video of you wiggling um, with excitement, then we would all very much like to see that as well,
0: please.
1: A little wiggle.
0: Yeah, look, I just did one again. Do you reckon I'll
1: do a little wiggle when I finally get to the fat spider in my website?
0: (laughs) I think you might, you know. In my story web. Anyway, I let's, I'll do
1: more than a wiggle, wiggle,
0: <laughs> let's move on to our writer in residence. Who is it, Al?
1: Oh, so this is – okay, everybody prepare yourselves <laughs> because this, this was hilarious. So I interviewed Joe Gorman. Now, Joe Gorman is the is a sports journalist and is a, a, um, currently doing his PhD, I think we discussed, um, a nonfiction author, and he is the author of a book – Called Heartland How Rugby League Explains Queensland, which might sound like an unusual. I, I was really keen for this interview, and it might sound like an unusual choice for me, but it was just I saw the book, and I have my, and we talk about this in the interview, but my dad is a former Queenslander, which we all know never happens because actually you're never former, you are just right. a Queenslander. Yeah. Um, and also a rugby league fan so when I saw the book I was just like this could not be a more perfect book mm. in the history of the world and I was really interested in it so I wanted to talk to Joe about how such a specific you know book it's very specific happened and what it was all about and the writing of it and stuff like that so we ended up having this rather long and involved interesting talk and I really hope you guys um, enjoy it as much as I did because I found it quite illuminating. Joe Gorman is an independent journalist, author, casual academic, and the 2019 Tom Brock Scholar. In 2015, he was nominated for a Walkley Award for Sports Journalism and an Australian Sports Commission Media Award for the best analysis of the business of sport. In 2017, his first book, The Death and Life of Australian Soccer, was hailed as one of the best and most important written on Australian sport by The Age and long listed for the Walkley Book Award. His second book, Heartland, how Rugby League Explains Queensland is out now through UQP. Welcome to the program, Joe.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: So before we get to How Rugby League Explains Queensland, which I have to say is quite an interesting topic to me and to my dad, um, let's go mm. back and start with your uh, sports journalism. What was your career path into this, into a kind of writing about sport?
2: Uh, that's an interesting one. So I probably didn't take a traditional career path into journalism and into sports journalism. Um, I studied history at university uh, at an undergraduate level. Um, studied, sorry, I studied history and then I um, did my honours thesis um, at the University of Sydney um, in the history department. And my honours thesis was actually about Australian soccer and oh. its relationship, I guess, to, um, you know, multiculturalism and notions of identity in, in this country. Um, and so from that point, I found that I really enjoyed writing. And my supervisor um, was like, you know, you should try and get into sports journalism. This is, you know, you write like a journalist more than a historian. So, you know, go and write some articles for the public, basically. And so I did that. And, um, Essentially, I just started working purely just as a as a freelancer um just pitching stories to to newspapers magazines you know websites um and so forth and it kind of just went from there really, so it really began with the interest in in the history of one particular sport and then sort of just grew from there i suppose so that was around two thousand and twelve two thousand and thirteen so a little while ago, but not not too long ago now
1: all right so the, the thesis that you wrote with regards to soccer and multiculturalism and stuff, was your interest in that in through soccer or was it in through history? Like, to, to come yeah. to, to that as a subject, you've obviously always had an interest in sport. Is that right?
2: Yeah, well, that's true. Like, absolutely, um, you know, like many Australian kids that grew up playing sport, grew up watching sport, um, I certainly have always been a huge soccer fan. Um, and I guess at, at the time of of writing that thesis in two two thousand and eleven, I just had to choose a topic and actually commit to a you know a, a program of action, I suppose. And and you know, luckily, my supervisor said, "Look, pick something that you're interested in." And so I sort of scrapped some ideas that I had that were more you know politics, society, and culture, and decided to go with sport. And I found that a great entry point into talking about. Um, those exact things about politics, culture, and society. Um, so it was a great way to combine um, my interest in, in soccer and in, in Australian sport with a, a kind of wider interest in, in you know, the way we organise ourselves as a society. And um, I'd always been interested in you know, this, this notion of an Australian identity, and I found that soccer was a really interesting way to address that and, and ask some questions around that
1: and so let's talk about the writing then because you know your your supervisor suggested that you kind of approach it like a journalist rather than like an historian was writing something that always interested you was were you were you good at that at, at you know at school and stuff like that
2: um i think i was okay at it i i come from i guess a uh, writing background in that my father is a poet um so although he's a very different type of writer um, I suppose there 's always been a love of books and literature in the house when I was growing up, yeah. so um, he encouraged me to write, um, certainly you know gave me some good tips and so forth, um, and was a really good sounding board as a teenager and as a young adult. Um, so I guess I had that background yeah. um, through my family and um, and then yeah I, I did enjoy i 've always enjoyed writing. I really enjoyed writing at university, you know, essays and so forth. I've always really enjoyed that kind of thing. Like, I don't, I do, I wasn't one at at high school and at university to find essays daunting. I actually found them kind of exciting. So, it was a natural progression. But I would say though that it wasn't until essentially the end of my honors year at university that I actually felt like perhaps I might want to be a writer. I'd never once considered that prior to that. Like, it wasn't something that I grew up wanting to do and um, never really thought about it as a career option. Um, and so it, it was kind of a, um, a happy accident that it all came together in the end.
1: Okay. So, you know, you said as far as, you know, following through into sports journalism, you just sort of started pitching and, and that kind of stuff. How did you know how to do that? Was that, did you kind of do some networking? Did you speak to other writers mm. about how it all worked? Like, I'm, I guess yeah. have some tips on anyone who might be interested in doing what you've done.
2: Yeah, look, I didn't have a whole lot of guidance. I mean, like having my dad um right there was helpful and that he gave me the confidence to just say just go and start sending emails out. But in terms of like finding the contacts and how actually how to pitch, I suppose that was a lot of trial and error. I mean, I imagine I sent a lot of really terrible pitches to and which are probably still sitting in the inboxes of, you know, <laughs> editors around the country. So I don't I I don't claim to have any great expertise at pitching. Um but I guess the most important thing is, you know, I had, I I think I clearly had a a passion for it and an interest, and perhaps a um, uh, coming from a a, a background in history and in interest in politics and that kind of thing. Perhaps I was pitching different types of stories to to sports editors and to to editors in that they perhaps hadn't um, had those kind of approaches before. Like I was looking at different angles into sport. Yeah. Um, but so I guess the thing is, is that I suppose a lot of other um, young writers in particular, it's just like that sense of um, trepidation about actually putting yourself out there. I never really had that so much because I had my dad in my corner saying, just do it, you know, yeah, just go yeah. and send those emails out. So I had really, I was really lucky. Uh, but in terms of the actual process of putting a pitch together, I didn't have a lot of, you know, um, technical guidance or anything. I just sort of sent an email and said, I'd like to write the story, will you do you want to run it? And luckily they said yes. You know, it wasn't it wasn't um there was no sort of grand design in any of it. It was just a process of trial and error really. I think the most important thing is just to put yourself out there and have a have a good um a good idea and a and a sense of passion for what you're doing and I think people respond to that.
1: I think um, the point you made about sort of the the angles that you were possibly pitching as well, like having a, taking a slightly different approach, um, I think as as far as that goes, because of course with a pitch, the angle is everything. So if you're pitching mm. something that they're not getting all the time, then clearly it's a much more interesting thing for them to consider. And to me, it seems like you're as interested in what goes on off the field as much as what happens on the field, is that something that has developed over time? Have you always been interested in, um, in that, in the sense that, like, you're, uh, you know, you're talking about the business of, of sport was one of your first, um, uh, the analysis of the business of sport in 2015 was what you got nominated mm. for Walkley for. Um, is that something that has always interested you, like from the perspective of putting it into the wider culture?
2: yeah like um absolutely so I was never one to be fascinated by sports journalism per se it was more I was interested in um like I was when I was reading you know as a young um at university, for example, I was reading politics, I was reading uh essays I was reading uh, magazine stories I wasn't really reading about sports so much, and so I was more interested in those kind of um wider sociological questions, I guess. And then I just thought this is probably a gap in, in, in sports journalism in Australia. Not to say that no one does it, but it's just kind of like generally, I suppose, the, um, the way in which people write about sport is more about what's happening on the weekend and, you know, who's injured this week and what are the transfers and so forth. So I definitely never – I was never interested in, in writing about that stuff and I'm still not. I'm interested in writing about why a sport matters to a community Um, or perhaps, you know, some of the politics that was playing out, you know, behind the scenes or um, things like that. So I think that, I mean, it's probably not for me to say, but I felt like that maybe um, was different, a different approach perhaps Mm. to some other Mm. journalists. And uh, and certainly, um, you know, I, I pitched my first book to a publisher. I think it was only about two years after starting... To write at all, so I had this confidence because I knew that what I was writing about wasn't what people were writing about. So there was a market for it, yeah. and um, well, I didn't know there was a market for it, but I knew that it was different, right? So um, uh, that that probably gave me a sense of difference too to editors and to book publishers and so forth. I hope anyway, I think that's what happened.
1: So was the first book that you ever put out there, was that the death and life of Australian soccer? You want to, is, is that the first one that you ever proposed? Yeah. And, and that was yeah, based so on your thesis?
2: It was in part. Um, it, like my, my thesis covered broadly um, that period of history sort of between the 1950s and the, you know, up to the 2000s of, of this period of Australian soccer and, Australian soccer and Australian society. Um, and my book largely built on that, but what was different about the book was it had, um, a lot more, you know, detailed research and detailed interviews with people involved in the game. Um, and it was, there was a big difference in the way it was written. So it was written for a much more popular audience rather than an academic, um, examiner. So, um, you know, but I had a very clear idea from the very beginning of what I wanted to write. So I pitched it as the Death and Life of Australian Soccer. You know, that was the title of the book before a word was written. Um, you know, I had a very clear idea of where how the chapters would 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 play out. Um, very detailed <laughs> understanding of where the book was going to go and what it was going to look like in eighteen months' time. And I think perhaps that kind of um, foresight and that that kind of like. Um, preparation is what um, appealed to the publisher yeah. because they didn't have a sample chapter, they didn't have um, really anything to go on except that I've written a bunch of articles roughly related to this topic and so I was a published writer and I had a, clearly had a passion for it and I clearly had a plan of action and so I think that's what appealed to, to the publisher and, and they gave me an advance and said, you know, on your way go and I'll put you in <laughs> 18 months and give me some, give me a copy back in 18 months, sort of thing. And that, and that worked out great. So, yeah, it was a really fantastic experience of writing my first book. Like, it was very pain, painless and yeah. just absolutely just really enjoyable. And had a fantastic publisher, um, Alexandra Payne, who is no longer at the University of Queensland Press, but she was there for many years. She was the woman that basically took that from um, the genesis of the idea and the pitch to publication she was absolutely fantastic
1: all right so you sell the book on a proposal you get the contract and then you have to write it now as far as you said you had quite a detailed plan but you know what was the writing process for it like for you because you know the jump from feature length stories to long form narrative work is like non-fiction narrative is is a big jump in some ways. Did you find it to be that or was it more just a natural progression of building on the academic work that you'd done and, you know, the, and and the features?
2: Yeah, like I was still absolutely a rookie when I began it. So I had no real idea of how to put the, to put together a, an 80,000, 100,000 word book, but I had an idea of how it might look, right? So um, essentially my, the way I did it was I went, okay, I want to write a book that begins post second World War in the 1950s with this great wave of migration from Europe to Australia and how that affected Australian soccer all the way up until two thousand and fifteen i 'm um, going to write it in, in a chronological order, sort of a you know um, starting at the beginning and finishing at the end and i 'm going to essentially break it into twelve chapters, and each of those chapters i'm going to treat like a long form essay and that was the way in which i I, I kind of uh, made it seem possible. Do you know what I mean like yeah. Thinking to yourself, I've got to deliver, I think it was like 90,000 words to the publisher in 18 months it can be really overwhelming. But rather than think of it in that terms, I just broke it into 12 essays. And I knew I could write 12 essays of, you know, what, eight, six to 8,000 words. I knew that was not too hard. So that's the way I kind of tackled it. And then the process really was, um, you know, like I'm 29 and when I started writing the book, I would have been about 26, I suppose, 25 maybe. So I didn't live through almost all the period in which I was writing about. So it just was a real process of diving into archives. You know, I read every freaking soccer magazine from like (laughs) 1955 (laughs) to 2015.
1: You must really Um, like it because that would just be punishment to me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, look, I mean, look, that's right. For many people, that's absolutely insane. But I actually loved it because this is a topic that I'm interested in. And so... I could see the history and I could see it all, you know, playing out week by week. And the, it was just great fun. And what it also allowed me to do was go with authority to speak to old fellas and say, okay, this happened to you in, you know, 1971, tell me about it. And they were like, Oh, wow. How do yeah. you know that? Okay. Cause yeah. like, and, and so that research was absolutely fundamental in building trust with, you know, um, former players who, who looked at me probably as what the hell is this 25 year old kid writing about <laughs> the Australian soccer history for <laughs> like it gave me that. And I think they, that allowed the interviews then to become um, more than just, you know um, the good old days and nostalgia, but like, you know, really proper interviews where I got some great stuff out of people. Um, so it was a really important part is just doing that research and really giving myself a foundation to then ask educated questions to, to um, various people within the industry. Okay,
1: so uh, were you always gonna write a second book? Like, where did Heartland come from?
2: Uh, Yeah, okay, so um, that's, yeah, like I don't, I've never really had much of a plan. I I never, as I said, I never thought that I was going to write, I certainly didn't start thinking about writing a book until post, you know, undergraduate studies at university. So there wasn't a great plan there or anything, but I guess I just really loved i really loved the process of writing that first book, um, The Death and Life of Australian Soccer. I just thought it was the best thing ever. You know, it, I, I didn't make any money out of it, really. And, um, you know, there wasn't... I, well, I'm not rich by the end of it, but I just loved the process. Um, and so I thought, I want to do this again. And I liked the process of writing, of building an argument over the course of, you know, 80 to 100,000 words. I thought that was just a really... Uh, It was a fun experience for me, and I was born in Queensland, which, um, for your international listeners, is a very large state um, in, in, I guess, the north of Australia, on the um, northeast of Australia, and it's a very parochial state, um, and it's always been seen to be a little bit different to the rest of the, the rest of Australia, I suppose. Yeah. And Queensland is seen to be a bit different to the rest of, 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 Australia. So I had this kind of enduring fascination with Queensland and particularly rugby league, which is the most, I would say the most culturally important sport in, in that particular state. And I, I wanted to sort of, I guess, narrow my focus a little bit and rather than write about the country, was just what, write about one state in that country. And I thought, there was, you know, rugby league, telling the story of rugby league could tell you a lot about um, the development of that state over the last 40 years or so. So that's where it really came from is this kind of personal interest in in um, both the sport of rugby league, but also really in particular the state of Queensland. Why is Queensland seen to be different? Is it different at all? And, you know, what's 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 the story up there? What's going on?
1: So did you approach the writing of this one in the same way or in a different way to the way that you went about your first book?
2: Um, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. Like it was, it was a process of, um, you know, pitch the, the, the concept to the publisher, which um, they immediately um, accepted and gave me an advance because in part, the, the soccer book had done quite well, but also because, um, you know, the university of queensland press and i'm writing a book about queensland so it was like a perfect fit and so they said yeah go for it i think they gave me like i think 18 months to do it and so again i spent probably the first six months just going through the archives and then um allowing myself to build what i thought would be i guess like a a a hypothesis and a thesis on what i thought the book might be about and then i went and started interviewing so i just talked to everybody i could about you know and and when when you do that, and once you've talked to twenty or thirty important people, you start to synthesize, okay, this is the story right this is what i this is where I want to go. So I didn't have as clear an idea in my mind about what this book would look like as I did with the soccer book, but the process was very similar research, interview write, and um it was great fun as well, you know and the way I've been able to finance all this stuff is um essentially through freelance writing but also through um you know being a phd candidate with a scholarship and and various other scholarships so that's been very useful for me as well
1: well i was going to ask you about that and and so as far as that goes then um you said you had about 18 months to do the book um and Mm -hmm. you know obviously the research and the interviewing like when it actually comes time to the writing aspect of things do you put aside a block of time or are you fitting it in around the other you know the, obviously the, the PhD work you're doing, the the freelance writing yeah. work you're doing. How are you managed because you, you are swimming in words. Like you are academic, you yeah, are yeah. features, <laughs> you are books. Like, that's a lot of words. and yeah. I know a lot of people would be um, – you know, the last thing you feel like doing after you've spent a day freelance writing is sitting down to write books. So uh, how do you hmm. juggle all that stuff?
2: Yeah, well, at the moment this year I've been teaching um, – sports business management at the University of Technology in Sydney. So I'm more the folks on the teaching side, but pretty much between the years of I guess two thousand and fourteen to two thousand and eighteen, pretty much just full time writing. And the way I was able to do that, as I said, was in part through, you know, earnings from freelance writing, which I try and do as often as possible. But then I was also I've also been on a PhD scholarship since two thousand and sixteen. And while that's not a lot of money, it's enough to basically provide a you know a basic wage from week to week so i just live very frugally and essentially just write as much as possible and i don't necessarily set aside time like particular blocks in the day to write i find that i'm sure that helps for some people i know it does it works for my dad really well um but i find that often i'll just i'll come across a piece of research and i just think it's so exciting that i found this thing that it just caused me to go home and want to write and so i just might write from you know 6 p.m until midnight or something but then on other days i can't write anything at all so there's not really kind of like a consistent um way in which I've, I've figured out how to actually develop a writing schedule um i think i've been really lucky in that i've always just whatever i've been writing about is something that i've really wanted to know about and i've been really really interested in so there's never been any real i've never faced writer's block or anything like that um but, you know, I try and treat it like a proper job in the sense that, you know, I wake up early and I start work pretty early, um, whether it being um, writing, researching, getting out there, interviewing people, or whatever it might be in relation to that book or project. I'm starting at, you know, 8, 8.30 or like this sort of thing. So I try and treat it like a real job. Otherwise, you know, you can just kind of let this stuff get, totally, you just gets out of hand, you know what I mean? You just put it off and put it off and put it off and you just end up hanging out at coffee shops and not doing a hell, not doing a lot, you know, <laughs> so. <laughs> yep. Yeah,
0: oh yeah, we've but, all
2: been there.
1: <laughs> um, but what I mean, I,
2: I guess like the thing is is that I haven't had the burden of having to, you know, work a full-time job in an office and then come home and do the research and writing at night. I've been able to sort of put together a, a um, uh, A kind of job where it's like I'm doing my PhD whilst I'm also writing the book. So the PhD that I'm I'm still yet to finish it, even though the book's out, is basically the same topic as my book, right? Uh, So that allows me to kind of um, kill two birds with one One stone. stone. Yeah, yeah,
1: that makes sense. Um, And it's interesting because I can actually I like you know the whole rugby league in Queensland thing is not my particular area of passion um, but I can feel your passion for it in the book. Do you think that that your natural writing voice stems from that passion because you know as someone with academic roots it's it's actually quite a different type of writing even you know if you're writing it you know even together you know as side by side they're two quite quite different um, styles of writing yeah. how do you kind of like manage that to, to stay well, true to your natural writing voice in the book as opposed to the um, thesis.
2: Yeah, and this is interesting because I kind of came out of my, um, the honours year of university back in 2012 and I pretty much had to unlearn how to write like an academic because mm. I was, I'd, I'd sort of been, I guess, trained to to write like in academic style, which is horrible. Do you know mm. what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's completely inaccessible. It's, it basically makes interesting things boring. That's that's what academic writing is for me. Yeah. It it makes it dry and it's like nitpicking between little scholarly arguments. And I understand why it all exists and why that process is there, but it is not helpful in communicating ideas to mass audiences. So I spent a fair bit of time, you know, essentially unlearning that and 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 relearning how to um, develop a, a voice and a, a voice that just spoke to real people, you know what I mean? Rather yeah. than to peer reviewed um <laughs> journals or whatever. Yeah. So um uh, and, and now I just try and avoid it at all costs writing like an academic.
1: Right. You know, so you just I, specifically like, actively I, it, try not to do it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I just I despise it. You know, it's um it's not it's not something that um I think is useful in, in, in learning again. I, I I know that there's certain things you have to do to, you know, publish in academic journals and everything, but I still um, it's, you know, sport, especially when you're writing about sport, you know, whether you're writing in an academic sense or not, I mean, it's something that people really enjoy. And so I feel like disguising that through, um, you know, really turgid kind of arguments with other academics or secondary sources is just really distracting people from what they enjoy about it the most, which is the kind of narrative of sport, is yeah. the narrative of of the traditions. And there's a, there is kind of a... a an internal narrative to every sport, which I think lends itself to sports writing. And, um, so I just try and yeah, I try and write as simply and as, 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 clearly as possible. I'm not saying I always succeed in that, but that's always the goal is, is to try and not become an academic if, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, that does make perfect sense. Um, now the book came out perfectly timed for Father's Day, which of course is ideal when you're talking about, you know, sport. Um, so, which I bought it for my dad. He's a former Queenslander, although I would say former is questionable. And he's also a Brisbane Broncos fan. And for our international listeners, the Brisbane Broncos are, you know, one of the two teams in Queensland. that You either go for one or the other if you're from up that way. Um, so he'd be right in your sweet spot. But is there a challenge in taking – I mean, it's a fairly niche subject that you're dealing with here in a funny way. Um, yeah. Is there a challenge in taking that wider or is that not really the point of what you're doing?
2: Yeah, I know what you mean. I think there is a challenge in it and that, um, you know, it's it's a sport. So rugby league is a sport that's only really played along the eastern seaboard of Australia, only really played seriously in, in two states in this country. It's only, you know, it's only played in a few countries around the world. So it's a very – and I'm only writing about it in one state. So, it is a very <laughs> so it's getting narrow, narrower, and um, narrower and narrower and <laughs> narrower. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. But I don't think that matters, like, because really, I mean, you know, the book – is not about the play-by-play of every game that ever happened in Queensland. It's mm. about why this sport, what this sport can tell you about a people and about a culture and a way of life, um, I guess, for and, and, and I guess a, a sense of an attitude, a state of mind mm. for, for Queenslanders. That's what the book is about. And I think that, um, you know, like, for example, there's some great, Baseball writing in America. I have, no, I have no idea about baseball at all. I couldn't tell you the first thing about baseball in terms of actually how the sport works. But I can connect with this kind of writing or storytelling because it tells you about the history of America, for example. Do you know yeah. what I mean? So yeah. I don't think there's necessarily a massive problem with, with um, tackling a narrow subject. What you're talking about is a cultural phenomenon. And so as long as you're explaining that um, clearly and, 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 and tying it into broader social movements and, and trends, I think people can understand it. You've got to have a bit of faith in the reader to sort of go on that journey with you. Um, naturally, most people that buy this book, I guess, are going to be either fans of rugby league or sport or have some interest in, in Queensland, right? So I knew that my audience was not necessarily going to be the broadest audience possible, but I, I, I felt like it's important with both soccer and rugby league in both those books I felt like it was important to speak out rather than in. Does that make sense? It does, So taking the stories from Queensland Rugby League or from Australian soccer and and trying to communicate them to an audience that might not be fascinated by either of those two subjects, Mm. that's, for me, the goal of all really good sports writing is to make it accessible for people that don't necessarily watch the sport, Uh, whilst also, you know... um, being appealing to those who really love the sport. Now, that that is a challenge, but I think it's always really important to speak out rather than to speak to the core audience because, you know, you can get trapped in kind of um, assumed knowledge and
1: jargon and so forth if you do that. Yeah. Well, I have an interest in it from the perspective of someone who's interested in Australian politics because you only have to watch an election, a federal election, and the response to the federal election with everyone going, what happened in Queensland? to to realise that we all need to have some understanding of what's happening in Queensland, <laughs> yeah. And I, for sure, I mean I that as no offence to our Queensland listeners on any level, but it's just a, it is a it is something that comes up every single time we have a federal election. So, I think it's interesting from that perspective. But you know, that would be me.
2: Yeah, but that's and that's true because it, it um, Queensland is kind of like it gets a state that's under constant scrutiny. Mm. Um, it's always it's had a history of 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 electing. Um, right-wing, often authoritarian governments um, or, or, or having authoritarian right-wing leaders um, or representatives. Um, and so, you know, that's that's broadly speaking true and that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, the rest of Australia is often frustrated or perplexed by Queensland. But, you know, what I found is that although that stuff might be true, you know, sport is sometimes a reflection of of those politics, but it's often also like can run against the grain of it. So Queensland, whilst also being having a really kind awful history in many ways, yeah, you know, with race relations between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, rugby league has this in Queensland has this tremendous Indigenous presence and respect mm-hmm. for Indigenous players and participants, and so it was kind of like a, a counter narrative to the deep north narrative that we always hear about Queensland society. And I think that was important to, to kind of place side by side to say, look, this history does exist. Um, This political landscape does exist, but this sport is telling us something that we perhaps it's it's running against the grain of that. And it's telling us a different story about Queensland. It's equally important to recognize that. Um, And, you know, so I, I try and do things like that to, to look at how sport reflects a, a broader society and its political and social and cultural makeup, but also sometimes how it can run against the grain of those things as well. Hmm. All
1: right, we're well, switching gears slightly. Um, I see on your bio that you're not a social media, you know, fan. Um, how do you no. go about promoting your work? Are you travelling or are you? Because it's, it's, you know, like it's often um, a way for people to... Get the word out about their stuff, and and um, I'm just interested in your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, look, that's not that's not always been the case. I um I had a Twitter account probably from around 2000 and I don't know 12 or 13 to maybe 2017. Um, so I, my my first book I promoted through social media and I had a reasonable, I guess, following on on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so you know that that was helpful. Um, but I quit social media pretty much in all forms. Like I quit Facebook years and years ago, and I quit Twitter in two thousand and early 2018, so I don't have any forms of social media at all mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, and so it does, I guess, make that um, promotion a little bit more difficult. But, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not self-publishing. I go through a publishing house, and they've yeah. got a publicist and their own internal mechanisms of promoting this stuff. So I'm still getting out and doing, you know, radio interviews and, and so forth. I mean, you, you undoubtedly lose something by not having um, a social media, especially a Twitter account um, when you've got a book coming out and I accept that but I think it's about opportunity cost and, you know, when you're working, you mentioned before, you know, you're working with words, and you're swimming in words. Well, the other thing I'm doing is I'm on the computer all the time writing yeah. in some form and the last thing I want to do is have two tabs open, one of, you know, Facebook friends and, and all that rubbish and then um the other of, you know the horror of um twitter you know so sure. i just it's like it's you know what i mean like it's it's uh, it's entertaining and fun but like um it's best to just kind of for me to just be outside of that yeah. um i've had some examples of friends who've you know gone through like horrible experiences on on twitter in particular and it's just kind of like oh it's just not worth it you know like yes you might lose something in the promotion of your work but I feel like your work, um, your productivity increases um, a lot, and also your state of mind is is much much better. At least that's for me, right? I mean, everyone's different, but for yeah. me, my the state of my state of mind is much much better since having deleted all forms of social media. It's been fantastic, you know. <laughs> food <laughs> tastes better. The air's fresher. Everything's just much better.
1: It's cleaner out <coughs> here. Um, all right. Well, let's uh, let's finish up today. Thank you very much for your time. It's been a really interesting um, conversation. Um, we finish up every time to- every interview with our um, asking our infamous three top tips for writers question. So, Joe Gorman, tell mm. us what are your three top tips for writers? Um,
2: okay, the Probably the most important tip I would say is um, is enjoy the process of it. So don't think too much about the result. That's something my dad taught me ages ago is, you know, the process of doing something is the most important thing. So don't focus too much on the result of it. You know, you've got to enjoy that process. And so how I've taken that into my own life is, you know, um, rather than design these grand projects and talk about the end result, is just go and do the actual thing and enjoy what the writing and the research and the interviewing and all that kind of stuff. So enjoy the process. Um, If you can't enjoy the process, the result probably won't ever happen Um, and it won't be as good as you'd like it to be. Secondly, I'd say um, write um, clearly. (laughs) Like use simple words and short sentences. That's something I'm not always successful at doing. I'm not saying I'm an expert at that. But um, certainly, that's a, a tip that I tell my students at, at university is just to write clearly and simply with with short declarative sentences. Um, and a third tip: wake up early. I don't know. Um, <laughs> wake up early and start work. And get on I mean, with it. Get on with it. Don't. Um, yeah, I mean, especially if you have the ability to, you know, have. Um, Time to dedicate to writing, it's very easy to get distracted by other things and just spend the day kind of pottering around and, and doing other things rather than actually writing. And I think if you treat it like a full time job, like, you know, get to work um, on time and actually begin the process, that's very useful. So, yeah, get to work. I don't know if those two those, those things probably have all a similar bent to them, but yeah, um, they
1: are excellent. Thank yeah. you so much. We very much appreciate your time today. Best of luck with your book. Um, and um, and you know whatever you decide to do
2: next. Thanks for having me on.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in Freelance Writing Stage 1 is the fastest way to get there. Step-by-step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, plus interview skills, industry expectations and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash freelance. There we go, Joe Gorman. I reckon that book is going to do really well. I think so too and it's
1: a – look, it's a timely thing. We mm. sort of – we had to have – we had to uh, run it now because, of course, the rugby league grand finals start this week. For anyone yes. who is not in New South Wales, Victoria – oh, Queensland really, mm-hmm. Victoria, Melbourne Storm, um, there's probably got zero interest in any of that. Um, <laughs> but I actually – but I think it's like anything. I the, – the whole concept of, of sport as a – as an explainer of community and mm. as a – as an insight into culture and as a um, – as a business um, which of course you know Joe touched on all of those things and I think that um, it's it's a real story of you know it's it's like the Coliseum it, it is our Coliseum those kinds of sports and the kind of rabid fans that go with those sports uh, are, are though it is is us expressing that sort of you know raw stuff so, so true. I'm fascinated by it and I think that um you know I yeah anyway I hope you guys enjoyed it
0: Hmm. all right so um as you know i'm going to see come from away the musical what are you up to uh, until we speak again now
1: uh what am i doing well i'll be tiptoeing through the spider's web clearly because <laughs> that's how i roll um what else am i doing i don't yeah i just pretty much that i think at the moment i've probably got things to tell you and i can't think of a single know, one Right, always now. the way
0: yeah all right um where do we find you online now
1: uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at altait, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at
0: Tate. Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K H O O, on Twitter and Instagram, and over at valeriekoo.com. Of course, you will find the show notes at So You Want To Be And if you're not already a member of our awesome listener community on Facebook, it's free to join. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time.